Folks, the copyright expired song you're listening to is Chicago by Fred Fisher. You know, it's funny how we have this romantic view of Chicago in the 1920s. I lived in Chicago for a year and a half, liked it very much. There's this sense in the city that the 20s was maybe kind of the peak of Chicago. A lot of the buildings in the area are from the 1920s. Chicago was as big as New York in the 1920s. It was tied for the biggest city in the country. There are a lot of movies set in that time and place. It's kind of funny that we have that association because what was going on then? Prohibition, bootlegging, gangsters. That's that, that's like what we're remembering is the gangsters. And we're like, oh, they had the best gangsters back then. Wasn't that a fun time with all the the speakeasies? It's like, yeah, that's an illegal mob-owned business. That's what that is. <laughs> it's basically the bada-bing from The Sopranos. Oh, the murders back then. Oh, they had Tommy guns and Bonnie and Clyde, and they were gunned down in a hail of bullets. It's like, why is this romantic? I don't get it. Anyway, this is Chicago by Fred Fisher, who was, of course, born and raised on the mean streets of the Cologne, Germany. But he did immigrate to the U.S. and settled in New York. Fred Fisher was kind of a... <laughs> kind of a fraud. I looked up his Wikipedia. He was actually mostly known for writing Irish songs. Again, not Irish, German. And his name wasn't even Fred Fischer. He was born Alfred Breitenbach in Cologne, Germany. Cologne, Germany, the Chicago of North Rhine-Westphalia. So Fred Fischer was kind of a uh, self-hating German, I think you'd have to say it. Kind of a self-hating German. Though, if you think about it, that time and place, 1920s, Maybe self-hating German was a good thing. So hats off to you, Fred Fisher, for denying your roots and spitting on the grave of your ancestors. Hello, I'm Jeff Maurer. This is the I Might Be Wrong podcast. This is where you get all the politics, comedy, and swearing that I offer on the written version of my Substack, which is I Might Be Wrong.substack.com, in an easy to listen to, no reading required capsule for all of you who uh, don't cotton much to no fancy book learning. If you like what I do, I'd appreciate it if you please go to the Substack, like, subscribe. If you'd like to pay me, that would be very generous. I did ask last week if you would please uh, mail me a million dollars, and I, I did explicitly say no checks. And a few of you mailed me checks, and I have to say, okay, look, yes, I did cash them, but I don't have time to be going to the bank to cash your million-dollar checks, okay? Please send me a million dollars, and please send it cash. U.S. currency. No Bitcoin, no crypto, no fucking foreign currencies. Do not send me a million Canadian dollars, a million fucking loonies. What would I do with that? <laughs> send me a million in Monopoly Canadian play money that has a queen on it who I don't even believe in. I'm an American. The queen's like Santa Claus to me. I don't believe in her. Please mail me a million dollars, U.S. currency, cash, please and thank you. I, You know, I know I shouldn't start the podcast by berating the audience, but frankly, sometimes you people really need a talking to. Let's move on with the episode, though. Today's episode is called Playing the Excruciatingly Long Game on Guns. I wanted to write this one because the way we talk about guns, it's just, it frustrates me to no end. Republicans are not interested in any solutions whatsoever, it seems, at least most of them. And then Democrats have been backed into this corner where we are satisfied with talking about solutions that aren't really solutions, and that's also annoying. And I'm 
personally kind of not in the market for teeny tiny nibble around the edges solutions. I'd rather just wait until the day we can talk about real solutions, even though that day is probably way, 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 way off in the future. So it's called playing the excruciatingly long game on guns. Subtitle, The Case for Tantric Lawmaking. So as I said, I do hate our dialogue about guns. And I'm going to cut to the chase right away because, of course, the main thing we all want to know when we listen to a political podcast or read a political article is whether the author agrees with us. (laughs) So here we go. Personally, I think that America would be better off with far fewer guns. If you don't like that opinion, then You may want to sit this episode out, though you don't have to. This episode is, of course, done in my typical quote-unquote heterodox style that usually manages to piss off literally everyone and leave me with no allies. So, you know, even if you disagree, you might want to stick around. Look, I will probably say something shitty about someone you hate. So there's that to look forward to. At any rate, Democrats typically react to mass shootings by calling for measures that would not have stopped the shooting they are reacting to, which is, of course, a bit like reacting to low office morale by proposing a Venetian-style masked orgy. It does smack a bit of opportunism. It does cause people to question your motives. Democrats' approach also has the weird effect of handing Republicans a counter-argument. Republicans can say... This measure would not have stopped that. And they can actually be right about that by framing the issue in incredibly narrow terms, Democrats managed to lose. We look like ineffectual scolds engaged in moralistic grandstanding to please our base, which is something we should be wary of because we have been known to sail into those waters before. But I really think lawmakers aren't exactly to blame here. Democrats propose teeny tiny gun laws because those are the only laws that will not cause them to suffer Elden Ring style immediate brutal death in the next election. The entire debate ends up getting framed in a way that misses the point. The fewer guns side is losing the argument. And worse than that, I don't think it really matters if we win. I do think we would be better off acknowledging that our current debate is mostly pointless and focusing on bringing about the day when it is possible to pass a law that actually matters, even though that day will probably not come for at least several decades. I think the best and the worst thing that can be said about our current gun law proposals is that they are literally the least we can do. Democrats and a few Republicans are suggesting things like universal background checks and so-called red flag laws because these are reasonable ideas. After all, some things require clearance. You have to be approved by the government to drive a car, to fly a plane, to brew alcohol for sale. You even get vetted before a shelter. (laughs) Not by the government, but you get vetted before a shelter gives you a goddamn cat, even though... Everybody knows plan B for that cat is not live to a ripe old age and pass away surrounded by friends and family. We vet things. We look into your background. It is reasonable to look into someone's background before they buy a deadly weapon. 
To argue otherwise is to basically side with the twitchy psycho in this Simpsons clip, which I am going to play right now. Becoming a cop is not something that happens overnight. It takes one solid weekend of training to get that badge. Forget about the badge! When do we get the freaking guns? Hey, I told you, you don't get your gun until you tell me your name. I've had it up to here with you, rivals! I feel like the guy in that clip really is making probably the best possible case against background checks. Anyway, so background checks make sense. But they also don't do much. We have background checks for purchases from federally licensed gun shops. Those checks are not a bulwark against mass shootings. Nobody should act like they are. By my count, one of 22 incidents that I found on an AP list of recent mass shootings One out of 22 might have been prevented by universal background checks. That is, by closing the gun show loophole and loopholes for buying online. One out of 22. Red flag laws don't seem to do much better, judging by the shootings on that list. Though it is kind of difficult to tell which laws in which states might have applied to which shootings. And it should be pointed out, we can't know how many shootings are existing background check system did prevent, after all, potential shooters don't typically notify the press about rampages they would have gone on if they had been allowed to get a gun. So background checks maybe do a little, but they're not a game changer. Now, not doing much is, of course, different from not doing anything. I should really trademark that and sell it to Tylenol. Not doing much is different from not doing anything. If we could reduce non-suicide gun deaths by, say, 5%, that would save about 750 lives every year. Personally, I think that's worth it. I think that a bureaucratic hassle is worth saving a few jet airliners full of people. Assuming, caveat, that the people on those jet airliners are not those weirdos who recently ambushed people with a Christian hootenanny at 30,000 feet. I, I don't know how I feel about saving 750 of that particular type of life, but I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. 750, even if it is some weirdo with a guitar, we should save those people if we can. And it is easy to look at something like universal background checks and ask, why can't we do that? It's a fair question. Of course, the why should we do that argument seems to be better at getting people to the polls. Background checks are supposedly palatable because they're a small measure, but you have to consider they are a small measure, and people don't get pumped up over tiny things. You never see a car lot advertising itty-bitty savings or a casino saying, come by and win modestly. People don't get pumped over that. On the other hand, people who oppose gun restrictions often feel very strongly about that, and they do vote based on that preference, which might be why Background check measures often poll well and then fail at the ballot box. And in between (laughs) when I wrote this and when I'm recording this, the New York Times had a big front page article about all these various background check measures that have failed at the ballot box. So this is not elected officials letting us down. This is people going to the polls and not passing background check measures or barely passing them, even in blue states. It's a real dynamic. It seems like these issue polls, once again, are not really giving us good information. And I think this same go small, lose small dynamic 
applies to a potential assault weapons ban. Now, there is no good reason, in my opinion, to own an AR-15. Hunting deer with an AR-15 is like hunting slugs with a predator drone. But there is also no technical definition of assault weapon. Assault weapon is a made-up category, like sapiosexual or performance class sedan. It does not actually mean anything. Because the 1994 assault weapons ban applied to a made-up category, that law, which was in existence for 10 years, it was largely evaded. Gun manufacturers designed new weapons, called them blassault weapons, and then they resumed business as usual. In the written version of the article, I have (laughs) a graphic I found of the modifications that gun manufacturers made to get around the law. They're basically modestly changing the shape of this thing and maybe changing the color and sliding a couple other things around. They are not substantially changing the weapon, but they are making it legal under that law that we had for 10 years. They're making a few superficial tweaks and then pretending that it's a whole new thing. It is basically the Star Wars trilogy special edition of the gun world. And we probably should not be surprised that most of the research, not all, it's a little fuzzy, but most of the research finds that the assault weapons ban, which expired in 2004, had little to no effect. A better approach than looking at assault weapons is to focus specifically on magazine capacity. There is some research suggesting that limiting the number of bullets that can be fired without reloading That makes mass shootings less deadly. And the reason, I think, is obvious. If the shooter has to stop and reload, that gives police time to intervene. Unless, of course, we are talking specifically about the Uvalde police, in which case the shooter stopping to reload will just give them more time to sit in the hallway and brainstorm excuses for not confronting the shooter. (sighs) Nonetheless, it's important to note that most shootings are not mass shootings. The mass shootings get the headlines, but in recent years, 2.53% of non-suicide gun deaths are from mass shootings. And I think that does demonstrate the disingenuousness of our debate. We're focusing on mass shootings, but mass shootings are not really the problem. Mass shootings are a small, very small, really, subset of the real problem And the real problem is the relatively high likelihood of being killed by a gun in a country with many, many guns. This is the problem visually. And again, there's a graphic on the written version of the article, but I can describe the graphic to you. On the y-axis is homicide by firearm per 100,000 people. And on the x-axis is guns per 100 people. So how many people are killed, how many guns there are. Most developed countries have not too many guns, and not too many firearm homicides. So they are all clustered kind of down in the bottom left corner of the graph, and then way, 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 way up on the far right and top of the graph. So lots of guns, lots of firearms. Guess who that is? It's us, the United States. There is a positive correlation between the number of guns and the number of firearm homicides. The R squared is a little bit over 0.5. And again, the U.S. is the clear outlier among developed countries, parentheses excluding South Africa. South Africa's GDP makes it developed, but it's South Africa. It's weird. So the relationship is pretty clear. More guns means more shootings. The most common way 
of being killed by a gun, those ways don't make national news. The situation is very often two guys got into a fight and one of the guys had a gun. Gang violence is also part of the story. Unintentional shootings are part of the story. About 13% of non-suicide gun deaths are unintentional shootings. About 20% of all murder victims are killed by their romantic partner. Mass shootings get the headlines, but you are, in fact, far more likely, far, far, far more likely to be killed by a gun in a fight that boils over. And I do think there are legitimate reasons to own a gun. I am not a gun owner, but I do think there are legitimate reasons. I am not a hunter. I did grow up around hunters. I do know that hunting really matters to some people. They really, really enjoy it. For some people, it's a food source. Uh, Also, it should be noted, I hate deer. I have lived in some deer-heavy parts of the country, and uh, deer are assholes. Deer eat everything in your yard. They are on a kamikaze mission to make our streets undrivable. Deer are nihilistic fuckers who just want to watch the world burn. We really only tolerate deer due to a horrifically successful PR campaign, most notably Bambi, which I consider to be a shameless propaganda film that's basically the servine version of Birth of a Nation. I can't believe we let our kids watch that filth. Fuck Bambi. So perhaps that's one of the reasons I think owning a gun to hunt is okay. I also think the other legitimate use for a gun is home protection. Now, personally, I will not be buying a gun for home protection. I have run the numbers, and I know that the odds of me doing something incredibly stupid are about a million times higher than the odds of a home invasion. The data backs me up on this. Home guns are used in accidental shootings four times as often as they're used in self-defense, and they are used in assaults or homicides seven times more often. For me, this is an easy call, though I am reluctant to infringe on what people can do in their own homes, and if some people feel that they are safer with a gun, then that is a choice that I consider to be not insane. But I do think that some of the other arguments for gun ownership are extremely bad. The the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun argument. Uh, that strikes me as quite obviously untrue. There are, of course, a few instances of civilians with guns stopping a shooter. Of course, there are also examples of them wading into the fray and making things worse. Crime data is very difficult to parse. There are so many variables when it comes to crime that it is very difficult to isolate one thing. But I do think it's fair to say that the preponderance of evidence shows no connection between more guns and less crime. Honestly, based on my reading of the research, if anything, the correlation runs the other way. High crime areas tend to be more gun areas. Also, let me throw in one anecdote among the data. Uh, I was once in a 7-Eleven, <laughs> and I noticed that the guy in front of me, who was uh, probably 80, certainly in his 70s, possibly past 80, he had a gun. And My reaction to that bit of information was absolutely not to think, oh, good, Rip Van Winkle and his arsenal of cataracts, hand tremors, and high-powered weaponry are keeping all of us safe. I have never felt more calm in my life. I would say that my reaction was something to the exact opposite of that. So that's one argument I think is no good. I would also say that, in my opinion, the 
so-called right-to-revolution argument is patently absurd. Gun rights advocates do sometimes get the ghost of Thomas Paine up their ass, and they start (laughs) waxing poetic about how guns keep away tyranny. They keep the government at bay. Look, frankly, I believe that to be moronic. Do people know what kind of weaponry the military is using? The defense budget this year is $782 billion. I promise you, they are not spending that on pistols. Your Glock is not going to do anything if the shit hits the fan and the government sends an F-35 lightning after you, okay? Protection from government tyranny comes from our laws and it comes from our institutions. It does not come from small arms shootouts And some people might not like that system of keeping government tyranny in check. But if you do not like it, I'm afraid the train left that station about 200 years ago. So to sum up, in my opinion, yes, there are legitimate reasons to own a gun. But I also think that the unbelievable proliferation of guns in this country, especially handguns, which are used in 59% of gun murders, That proliferation is making us all less safe. Guns are so common and so easy to get that a lot of people have them and therefore conflict turns deadly far too often. Any law that does not address that reality is, in my opinion, just nibbling around the edges of the problem. And of course, most European countries ban most guns. That was most of the countries in that graph I talked about earlier. They have fewer guns, they have fewer gun homicides. By a lot. Canada has more guns than most European countries, but far fewer than us. And they also have major restrictions on guns. Restrictions that include mostly forbidding carrying a handgun outside of the home. Now, personally, here's the law I would put in place if I was in charge. I would like to see a ban on any gun shorter than two feet in length, or that can fire more than two rounds at a time, before being reloaded. This would allow people to have a rifle for hunting or for home protection, and that's really about it. Now, maybe some exceptions could be made for the very small number of farmers who have predator control issues. I would not, of course, want to subject someone to a 30 to 50 feral hogs situation, if you remember that famous tweet. But for most people, uh, 30 to 50 feral hogs is kind of an abstract concept. For most people, the ability to quickly and effortlessly slaughter two score wild swine, that is not a daily concern. And I know, of course, that my proposal, if I were to, you know, if I was in Congress, I put this forward as a law, that proposal would be unbelievably unpopular. Difficult to find words to describe how unpopular that would be. And I would not for a second recommend that any Democratic politician endorse my plan. If any Democratic politician was asked to get on the record about my two feet, two shots idea, my recommendation to them as someone with a background in messaging who thinks about these things, my recommendation would be that they call me a communist and then if I am nearby, spit on me. My idea is surely the least popular idea since OnlyFans decided to try to compete with Nick Jr. And that is all before you consider that my plan would require a gigantic Australian-style gun buyback program that would cost tens of billions of dollars. So I know 
people are not about to jump on this bandwagon, but if I'm being honest, I don't quite know what else to think about this issue. I just cannot convince myself that things like background checks and limits on magazine capacity would do very much. I don't think that they would. Nor can I shrug my shoulders and say, huh, nothing you can do about this, when I don't think that's true either. The reality, as I see it, is that the prevalence of guns is making us less safe. Decreasing that prevalence would probably reduce murder, maiming, and suicides by a substantial amount. So I'm interested in policies that achieve that outcome, and if I'm being honest, I don't give much of a damn about the others. And of course, a serious gun reduction measure might, might require repealing the Second Amendment. That would be a heavy political lift, to say the least. Now, you might not have to repeal the Second Amendment, but at a minimum, the Heller decision would need to be reversed. Also not easy. So these realities push the date at which a serious gun control measure could realistically be considered way, way off into the future. Passing a major gun reduction law would require a change in attitudes of the type that has only happened a couple of times in American history. This process would take an excruciatingly long time. This is tantric lawmaking in its most extreme form. And I can understand why people would find this approach unappealing, impractical, and basically a non-starter. But if we want to actually address the issue, this is the only road that I personally see. Now, I have witnessed one sea change in public opinion in my lifetime. Gay rights. As recently as the 90s, support for gay marriage... (laughs) was a fringe opinion, kind of like believing that dogs should be allowed to practice medicine. Nowadays, that opinion is really normal. 70% of Americans support gay marriage, including 84% of people aged 34 and under. So that tells me that incredible turnarounds are possible. Of course, let's recognize that just because one unpopular opinion eventually became popular does not mean that all unpopular opinions are destined to become popular. That is shitty logic. That is similar to the logic people use when they say, well, they said we couldn't go to the moon, but we did, and therefore every stupid pie-in-the-sky idea is actually possible. The reality is that most unpopular ideas just stay unpopular, which is, for example, why the socialist revolution is currently 174 years behind schedule. But I do think that the argument for majorly reducing guns has a chance to become popular because, much like with gay marriage, I think the logic is sound. I have basically laid out the argument for fewer guns in this podcast. Do you find it convincing? If you don't, well then congratulations, you are in the majority. And maybe you always will be. But... I didn't come to my position on guns because I think that position is destined for glory. I came to it because it's the only way I can see to substantially reduce gun violence. I think our current conversation is honestly mostly a sideshow. 
and it happens to be a sideshow waged on terrain that I find to be very favorable to the pro-gun side. And honestly, the only conversation I am interested in is a conversation about changing the conversation. The nibble-around-the-margins approach isn't getting us anywhere, and I don't think it ever will. If this country is ever going to pass a serious gun law, then it will probably happen several decades from now, which, the attitude I'm taking is, seems like a great reason to start moving towards that outcome right away. And that's the episode. Very good discussion in the comments section on this one. If you want to see the arguments for and against gun control, they are in the comments section. Can I add that I kind of like the song Chicago by Fred Fisher? I mean, it's no What's Up by Ford on Blondes, what is. But it's kind of, this one's kind of uh, peppy, and I like it. Also, the recording does not sound like it was done in a tin shack during a hailstorm. They've actually got some half-decent audio quality on this one, so... Well done, Fred Fisher, though you are a fraud. Oh, also, by the way, <laughs> actually, this song is being played by a guy we know from this podcast, Paul Crackerass Whiteman. Also not from Chicago. Also a fraud in the eyes of many. Anyway, that's it for this episode. I will be back next week with another episode, unless, as always, I am sued into bankruptcy by Ani DeFranco. It is always a risk I run in this business. But the plan is to be back next week, so until then, thank you very much for listening, and bye for now.